to Connecting with the Heart interview series. My name is Giovanna and I am your host. Today I have a very special guest. Who is she? She is from Japan, is a very good friend and her name is Sarika. Sarika holds a Master's of Science from the London School of Economics and has worked for many years for the United Nations on women's empowerment and urban development policy. She has been traveling the world first with her job at the United Nations and now as independent entrepreneur. She lived in more than 11 countries in four continents. She is a mother of two and she is married to an Irishman. Keeping the same focus on gender and sustainability, Sarika now shares her love for sake and face yoga. Sake with special attention to small-scale sustainable breweries and women brewers. She does so through her company Sarika Group. We met in Taiwan through mutual friends. Our love for sake brought us closer together. While I came from Poland to live in Taiwan, Sarika left Taiwan to go to live to Poland, where she is currently living. So let's welcome Sarika to this interview. Ah, so, okay. <laughs> Sarika, Kurichiba, welcome, bienvenida, Saprasham. Ah, muchas gracias, Giovanna. Genial. I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm very, 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 very happy. And first, before we start with the interview, I love to do this question. And this is, what does it mean Japan for you? What is, how is being born and raised in Japan has influenced you as a person that you are today? Oh my, it's a difficult question already. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm genetically, you know, 100% Japanese, but I actually only spent, let's say, seven years in my entire life in Japan. So that's such an interesting question. So I'm genetically Japanese and my, you know, the whole family is Japanese. I always grew up speaking Japanese in, in in our house, but the outside world has always been, you know, changing all the time. So that's kind of a interest. And actually, I wasn't born in Japan. I was actually born in Bangkok, Thailand. Wow! Yeah. I remember <laughs> that. Yeah, my parents are Japanese, but they were posted to uh, Thailand when I'm, I am made in Japan, but born in Bangkok. <laughs> wow! And for how long did you live in Bangkok when you were small? Um, zero to three years old at that time. But of okay. course, later as an adult, I actually went back to Thailand to work in Thailand with the UN. So it's like a cycle. <laughs> a cycle. Wow! <laughs> yeah, so it's an interesting question. <laughs> yeah, actually, because yeah, well, people, what does it mean? Yeah, I mean for. My point of view, uh, I am interviewing a lot of people from different places. And although people are very international, they keep always uh, something that is uh, related to their roots. And I love to do that question uh, or to make that question about the roots. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, for the topic we are going to talk later, uh, mm -hmm. it's very Japanese, uh, which is sake, no? <laughs> <laughs> 
So in this interview, I would love to talk about uh, your life before Selecta Group, then about becoming an independent entrepreneur, and of course, uh, life as an expat with a bicultural relationship mm -hmm. and having kids in a very intercultural environment. As I said in my introduction, you have lived in so many places around four continents, 11 countries. So we are excited <laughs> about uh, knowing about uh, more about that. So let's start with my first question and is how do you start working with the United Nations? Oh, well, oh, well, the easy answer is that I took the UN, um, what was called at the time the recruitment competitive recruitment exam in uh, social development. Yeah, but actually, um, yeah, the straightforward answer is that, uh, well, I wanted to change the world and I was looking around what, you know, kind of organization I can work for at that time. So I applied to the, um, what was called the UN uh, competitive recruitment exam. Uh, in I took the exam in social development like decades ago. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but before, before that, during uh, graduate school, I actually did an internship with um, UN headquarters in New York in the uh, DESA, wow. the uh, Department for Economic and Social Affairs. And uh, when I saw the kind of work they were doing, I was really excited and I thought, okay, how do I join? Not as an intern, but... <laughs> as a, you know, uh, official normal worker. So I've learned that there's an exam every year, once a year. So I took that exam and uh, yeah, that's how I joined. And my first post was to Nairobi, Kenya. Wow. <laughs> yeah. well, it wasn't that quick and easy. It took a long time, of course, but. <laughs> yes. And Actually, my next question is related to, to that. And what was the most rewarding uh, in working on women's empowerment and sustainable urban policy during the period with the UN? So you have been to different continents. So first Africa, and if I am not wrong, you were also posted to Thailand. So what was the most rewarding of working on saving the world? Oh. <laughs> Difficult question. I, I can't think of just one, but I mean, I think uh, they've been all kind of rewarding in different ways because I think the nature of the job, because I've been to kind of a country office, I've been to a regional office, and I've been also doing projects as well. So I think each level has its own rewarding point. I mean, some of the kind of so-called Policy work is hard to sometimes find something rewarding, <laughs> but I mean, I've ex kind of experienced kind of different types of nature of work. And I think personally, I think it depends on the person. But in my case, I really find it rewarding when I'm doing actually um, project work on the ground. So, yeah, but then again, so your question about was what was most rewarding in terms of for example, in the case of women, for example, in Thailand, um, uh, I got to be involved in the 15 years of follow-up to the Beijing uh, Women's Conference, and you know, that was a historical conference, so it was kind of really fun that I got to be involved in the follow-up in the Asia-Pacific region, but um, there, there are so many other <laughs> kind of project-level ones that have 
been rewarding as well, like uh, going to Mexico with a urban safety project. And uh, yeah, I can't think of one <laughs> answer. <laughs> I think in general it's rewarding when you can see if their projects are done, if they are carried out, if uh, people are out there. Um, and I think when people appreciate as well uh, the job that, for example, you are doing for urban development or for women, which is uh, nowadays very important for, for society and for the Absolutely. future. Yeah, I think when you can feel that you're making a difference, I think that's when it's, it becomes rewarding. Yeah. But then I realized you don't actually have to be necessarily in a organization to be <laughs> feeling that rewarding feeling either. But, yeah. Which I am very excited because uh, later on we are going to talk about uh, women in a very male-dominated industry and mm -hmm. you have been uh, really someone who has been there, has been watching and knows about it. So I'm very excited to, to arrive to that. <laughs> Special oh, I'm, to talk to you, <laughs> I'm also very excited and I feel very honored to, to have you here for, for this interview because I know that your life is very special and also a kind of motivation to, to other people to see there is an example, you know, you have a career and then you did a switch and how fulfilling this switch has been for you and also for, for others. We're, we're gonna talk a little bit about, later on about uh, the switch. And, and also uh, I would love to know, because through the UN, you have been to different places and have uh, met different colleagues, actually colleagues that uh, some of them I have met as well. So. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> and, I would love to ask you what are the most special memories during this period? It could be to uh, country related, project related, or colleagues related. What are the special memories? I mean, they're all so special. And then of course, you know, when I, I never actually imagined that I would resign. <laughs> so, I mean, for, I mean, what, when you, when I took, the, when I joined through the recruitment exam, I was 100% sure I would work until I'm 65 years old. <laughs> In like the organization. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, I, I worked about 10 years, I think, at the end. And anyway, yes, going back to your question, special. I mean, there's so many special things, but I think it would be the people. Because at the end of the day, it's about, you know, dealing with people and making hopefully <laughs> people's lives better. So mm -hmm. I actually met a whole range of people. I mean, uh, literally from street children up to, you know, high ranking um, um, people yeah. in the ministry. So it's been a really, for me, it's been really eye-opening because in a normal, you know, day-to-day -day life, you don't have this entire... <laughs> of people that you could meet every day so yeah so it's been a humbling experience and well, yeah and what's um even to this date some of the people I'm still in touch with that for example in India that we did a, a project together the counterpart uh, and I am still in touch and a lot of the colleagues even though I resigned <laughs> 
<laughs> we've still been in touch. So, yeah, I think at the end of the day, I mean, all, um, all of the, I, sorry, my dog is really noisy. Can you no hear problem. my dog? No problem. Just like, no problem, no problem. Okay. okay, my dog. He's also welcome. To <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I would say basically, yeah, the people, I mean, the people and the diversity of people that I got to meet was definitely memorable. Mm. Yeah. Which is the, the benefit of, of having an expat life or being, um, like changing countries and in different situations and environments. Um, so now you just said before that you used to work uh, 10 years for the UN and then there was a transition. So now this comes this, uh, to this part of the interview where I will, I would love to know about the transition because nowadays for people uh, might think I am, you know, I'm scared, I am not, I don't have security, how I'm gonna do it, I have an idea, I don't trust it, or maybe I trust it, but I don't know where to start. So uh, for you after working mm -hmm. 10 years at the UN and then uh, doing a career change, what was the most difficult in that trans transition? Oh, there was, <laughs> there was lots of difficult things, of course. Uh, and of course, when I was resigning, because I, I fortunately, uh, very luckily, I actually got a permanent um, appointment. So people were telling me, oh, you, are you kidding that you're really going to resign? <laughs> yeah. and, but, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, you know, when you have something, there was an instinct, I think, I was just following my instinct and there was a moment where uh, at the time my kids were small, they were zero years old and two years old. And uh, my husband was working in a different country. I was working in a different country. <laughs> and you know, wow. this kind of, it, it's, it was not easy at the time. And there was a um, opportunity that came up uh, for my husband Um, to move to Japan, even though he's not Japanese, but, <laughs> and, you know, at that time, it was like a, a light bulb in my mind that, you know what, maybe this is going to be a great opportunity, even though if I quit, I will have no job and all the work I did. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of, I mean, of course I was thinking about this, but at the end of the day, somehow the pulling factor, I felt like, but you know what? You know, I, I joined the UN for two reasons. One is that, of course, I want to make positive changes in the world. And I feel like, you know, my lifelong mission is always going to be gender issues. Yeah. As you know, Japan is pretty bad with gender, yeah. unfortunately. So. These two have been always my mission. And at that time, I was thinking, you know, rather than maybe, and I wasn't spending much time with my kids. Um, I wasn't able to spend much time with my kids at that time. And, you know, the family was living all over the place. So I was like, God, you know what? Maybe this is going to be a completely different. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of scary in a way because yeah. the whole time you've been, you're you're in this world. I, I mean, you have a clear vision where you're going. You know what's happening. You can 
expect what will happen. It's all kind of clear and secure. So to leave that was kind of difficult, absolutely, to answer your question. <laughs> but somehow in, <laughs> deep down, I knew that it would work eventually because I knew that there are many other things that I would be interested in life and I could probably still achieve the same goal that I wanted to achieve through different ways. I didn't know through which way at that time, but I just knew it would. <laughs> so, and, and it seemed that this connected with first you have the security, but then, then you follow your intuition and then you know, you're in between the security that you know and you have like currently holding and it's physical plus mm -hmm. what you, my intuition, but it's not, it's not an idea that is becoming, you know, visible. And then mm -hmm. it became very visible <laughs> with the time. <laughs> and um, that's why I would like to ask you, what would you recommend to someone who wants to do a career change, how to start? What would you what would you be your tips uh, to that person? Tips? <laughs> well, actually, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm a good, good person to give tips yet, but, <laughs> but I would say, I mean, in my case, I was just following my instinct rather than logic, because if you think through logic, it was completely illogical to <laughs> do what I did, but I mean, I knew deep down that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to spend time um, at last with my kids um, because I've took special leave without pay. I've took, taken maternity leave, but still, I felt like I still wanted to have much more quality time. But then, of course, when I did, I realized how difficult it was <laughs> to spend yeah. time with kids. But anyway, yeah, yeah. So tip-wise, yeah. I I think um, you would know that um, deep down that it would work. And even if you cannot logically explain how, I think you would have a gut feeling. And if you do have that gut feeling, I think basically the only answer is to just follow it. <laughs> yes. Even though it could be scary, yes. <laughs> and, um, and lots of people will try to stop you. <laughs> yes. And then is when is, you have to have like a, which was a, the case trust <laughs> yes which is understandable because if you are uh, <laughs> yeah, part of the staff already from the UN and there are like hundreds of people that uh, want to have that kind of contract but so it's, it's understandable on the other hand is mm -hmm. is a, a proof that you know if you have Uh, the courage if you have faith and if you have a lot of trust you can follow your heart yeah absolutely <laughs> and before before we start with the uh, sarika talking about sarita uh, sarika group i know that between this transition you were also changing countries because your hus your husband is also an expat and he is working in different places so How difficult was to build up a business still being on the road, uh, changing different countries? Yeah, that's a good question. Actually, um, to give my husband credit, he was the first one who, who followed me as a trailing spouse when I went to Nairobi. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So the, uh, yeah, to give him credit. So I felt like for sure I could return this um, 
<laughs> return is in. Anyway, so yeah, what? Sorry, I, I kind of lost the question. <laughs> the question is because we, we are uh, in uh, the ex. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay, okay. So oh, I know that is very difficult. Okay. I know in, in our environment, there are uh, dual careers. Yes. And uh, a lot of people are trying, you know, to find a way uh, to follow the spouse at the same time, uh, do a business or finding a job. So my question was how difficult or easy or uh, how do you think about finding a job or finding your heart, your career, your vocation, while also being on the road, changing different countries? Yes. Okay. I totally get it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. I think this is a huge um, um, issue. For example, I've, I've seen in Vietnam, for example. Um, and as I said, in some way, I saw it when my husband um, came with me to Nairobi. He quit his job and I know it was not easy for him. So I, I wasn't already expecting that it's not going to be super easy, but I didn't realize how difficult. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it also depends on the countries because some countries or most countries, if one person in the household has a you know visa, the spouse is not allowed to work. So there are legal yeah. issues like this. And I think that's been a, that's a major, has been a problem in the past. And if, for example, in the case of Vietnam, what I did was that I kind of treated that, well, I was in Vietnam twice, once with UNESCO, but this time, um, you know, as a uh, kind of with a family. And at that time, I wasn't actually intending to build a business as such at that very moment. But in hindsight, that really kind of helped me practice a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so like uh, an example of uh, face yoga, for example, because I actually, in my current company, I have two <laughs> key uh, lines of action with face yoga and sake. And in, I feel like thanks to my experience in Vietnam where I wasn't technically allowed to work. So whatever workshops I did, all the money I made, basically I... I um, transferred it to various NGOs and where, whatever. But so for me, it was I mean, at that time, okay, because, you know, legally you cannot um, establish a business unless you go through a certain way and uh, et cetera. So, yeah, I mean, at that time, I kind of treated it as a one, <laughs> like a testing or practicing phase. And number two, anything, um, basically, I was able to give to whatever that's needed. So, in a way, it was okay. I mean, I know that's not a business because in a business, you need to have <laughs> profit and income, but yeah. it was a really good practice. So, I don't know. I'm not, I mean, I don't, I'm not sure about tips as such, but you can surely, you know, practice for sure, <laughs> whatever field that you are in and treat that as kind of a practicing uh, ground and then whatever if you're not allowed to legally work and then then all the whatever payment that you receive you can surely give it to <laughs> something to good yeah, yeah. So, so I think it, if you treat it as that as a practice I think it will work but now with all this digital things you know I think you could be anywhere now because with the pandemic yeah. <laughs> you know, kind of whole work style has changed. And I think now this 
hopefully would be less of a problem for ex-spouses that they will be able to, um, whatever um, niche or industry they are, they're in. I think many, not every single profession, but I think a lot of them, you can actually work remotely. Remotely. Mm-hmm. And what you say, Sarika, is very true because being myself, also in every, in each country have done something. And this little something has um, trained me for the next thing and for the next Absolutely. thing. And it, it adds to it. So it's actually a benefit. Absolutely. <laughs> totally agree. <laughs> a benefit. And a benefit. So I, I read that you have been to 60 countries, that you have been in four continents, living in <laughs> seven countries. So, and... I, I was just thinking as a family, how easy or how difficult it was to adapt to the changes. Yeah, well, I think it depends on the age of the kids. <laughs> because in the beginning, it was everything was always smooth and easy. I mean, if they're in kindergarten or early elementary school, you know, it's, it's all easy. But I think it's becoming increasingly harder as they grow up because, you know, now they have their own identity, own friends. It's not like <laughs> you can yeah. next day you can go to a new preschool. So, yeah, it's been harder, but hopefully this will be the last move that we do until they graduate. Okay. So, <laughs> I mean, actually, we intend that to be the last move. So that's what we've promised them. And uh, then they can really you know, <laughs> choose the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I don't know, it has not been easy for sure. I mean, increasingly difficult for sure, but um, but yeah, we have so far managed. <laughs> and which tips would you uh, give to families with your experience uh, so that the kids and the family adapts uh, a little bit faster uh, as a family when they are changing countries? What, which suggestions would you say? <laughs> with your experience, you say like, oof, in my years, I learned this, this, and this, or? Yeah, well, I don't know if like, I'm in a good position to give tips for this, but for example, I mean, two things I would say, I mean, of course they have, they will always, I think the first response is that they don't want to move. So. I think we always have to acknowledge that, uh, okay, we, I totally get that, that you don't want, I mean, to actually, yeah, listen to them. And then we can finally take action, like get them excited rather than just go straight to positive things <laughs> or yeah. getting them excited. Because in the past, when my kids were smaller, I would always, you know, I mean, I was always excited to move to new places. So. I would be really excited and the kids would be excited. But uh, in the last, let's say two moves, the first response is no way, we don't want to go. <laughs> so yes, I, I guess listening to them or acknowledging them that that they're feeling that, oh, I see, okay, you don't want to go. Okay. <laughs> and then do the more excitement part after, after acknowledging yeah. what they have to Thing. but I don't know I don't have an answer to this maybe yeah. 
No, it's, it's the experience, no? You have like a lot of experience with, with the kids, no? And this is the, the word sharing and, and this is very important. Actually, I had it also in another interview as well for a friend who has a very uh, intelligent, uh, emotionally intelligent kid. And she said the most important is to acknowledge the feelings of the kid. So even in, in these cases, mm-hmm. uh, when there is change, that is, is very important as well, no? And and then they have the experience, and they have also have the experience of changing, changing the the countries. Yeah, and hopefully it will be a positive thing for them in the future as well. Yeah, Even I, though, I of course, sometimes it will be hard when you're in the middle of it, the transition, because yeah. you have to make friends all over again. And well, that's also the same for adults too, but. Yeah. <laughs> but for kids, it's a little bit easier, I think. They adapt faster than for adults in some occasions, in the positive <laughs> occasions. Could be, could be. <laughs> could be, could be. Sometimes you're a bit frozen, Giovanna, but okay, I can see you. I can, now you're moving again. <laughs> okay, now I'm moving okay. Am I frozen? No, I see you perfectly. Oh, okay. Oh, good. <laughs> so uh, my last question, question related to um, culture and changing and expect life is your husband is Irish and you're Japanese. Any tips for big cultural couples? <laughs> again i'm not sure if i can i'm in a position to advise but, but i think i think our rather than the cultural differences i think this the similarities in our values is what brings us i mean no it's hard to it's hard to i never really thought about kind of us in a bicultural way because we just like very you know similar things like True. we like Guinness beer and <laughs> eating and drinking and so I never really you know kind of looked at this as a bicultural of course I didn't know anything about Ireland until I got to Ireland but it has never been a hurdle so far so I don't know any tips I, I guess just to look for similar values, I suppose, yeah. because that, that would definitely be a stronger bond than a cultural differences. And I think Ireland and Japan is probably pretty different, but I don't really see much of a huge gap yeah. because what we like is so close. Yeah, and both are islands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I, I think now that, that you said that you both uh, are from the background very international and that makes, I think, life, uh, life a little bit easy as well. So very open-minded <laughs> and, and traveled and, yeah. Yeah, cool. although, of course, if you go one generation or two generations back to my grandparents, they were completely against uh, marrying anybody who is outside Japan from outside. <laughs> they said, what? Iceland? <laughs> I said, no, no, Ireland. Ireland. Iceland. No, 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 no. That, that's not good. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. it all worked out well. <laughs> New generation. So yeah. now, 
Now, Sarika, this is uh, the, the main topic for today, and it's Sarika Group, and uh, it is about sake and face yoga. So <laughs> how this love for sake and face yoga started? <laughs> Actually, completely by accident. <laughs> It was never, I never imagined in my life, uh, actually, when I was working in the UN, I would have never, someone told me, you're going to start up a company to do with sake and face yoga, I would have laughed, because it was, this is all ac an accident <laughs> in, in some way, but you know, they, they say that there's no such thing as a coincidence, but it's just by chance that I, um, I got to know sake and face yoga and by chance, I mean, sake, I really actually hated sake until maybe 11 years ago. <laughs> and I always thought it was a, a pretty horrible drink that uh, like my grandfather was always drinking it and the little I tasted was like, <laughs> why would anyone drink this? <laughs> so I, <laughs> yeah. I do because I love it. <laughs> No, no, it was yeah. not a good one at that time. Oh, now the sake is beautiful and amazing. But like in the past, I think the technology and uh, everything has been so refined now that it's it's the best time to drink sake now in 2021. I mean, that's even the title of a magazine that I just bought recently in Japan. <laughs> oh yeah. Goodness. But the, from the old times, the sake was pretty bad. So just by chance, when we were traveling in uh, Fukushima in uh, northeastern Japan, uh, I just had some local sake and I was just blown away that this is sake? What? This is completely different from you know what I knew from before, like the one my grandfather was drinking. And I was so shocked that Sake is this delicious. <laughs> so that was 11 years ago. And slowly, slowly, I kind of gradually started learning about sake. And I just loved it. And it's been a great way to kind of uh, love Japan again. I mean, I, of course, I always loved Japan, but I've been outside for so long. And it's been a fantastic way kind of to reconnect with Japan and yeah, yeah and where my <laughs> grandfather is from is actually one of the we have 47 prefectures in Japan but and this prefecture our ancestral town has uh, I think the second most number of breweries in all of Japan so it's full of breweries oh, wow. and <laughs> So it's been an interesting journey to discover these things in our own ancestral place. <laughs> And how come the idea, okay, 11 years ago, you tasted sake, it was different, it was beautiful. And then Sarika group. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, it wasn't instant. It took like many. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't like that. But uh, yes. So that was 11 years ago when I discovered it was great. Of course, I wasn't. You know, I just wanted to have more of the same kind. It wasn't like I was going to make a business or anything. <laughs> I was just learning about it. And so once I started to learn about sake, I was visiting breweries and, um, you know, kind of studying. Just um, I was reading lots of sake books. And then I discovered there is an organization that does sommelier tests. So 
like those kind of things I gradually did five years ago. And the more you learn about sake, it's so interesting because <laughs> it's related to everything in Japan from Japanese, you know, history to culture, like social etiquette, like ceremonies, everything. It's, it touches on everything. So it's so interesting that, but even at the time, I wasn't intending to, you know, <laughs> teach sake or anything it was just a hobby and actually I was doing my PhD at that time still in my original topic on urban uh, policy and gender issues so it was it never crossed my mind that I would have a sarika group <laughs> but it just gradually gradually and when I got to uh, Warsaw uh, last year and uh, I thought you know what I think this is a perfect place to establish my business um, because my kids are going to graduate from here. Um, so we want to stay here. And I really love this city, as you know, since you are came yeah. <laughs> from Warsaw. I, I know very much. <laughs> Giovanna, thanks yeah, to I, Giovanna. <laughs> I'm now, I, I was so excited to come here. <laughs> in, my, in my introduction to the interview, I said that actually I, while I left Poland to come to Taiwan, you mm -hmm. left Taiwan to actually go to live to Poland. <laughs> and I, was, I remember I was, when I arrived, I didn't know much about Taiwan, so by the way, I really love the place, but uh, I, as well, I love uh, Poland. Uh, it's very... It has a very fast, it changes very fast. It's, uh, it's a jewel that not many people in Europe know about it. Absolutely. I think it's the most underrated European city. I mean, it's gorgeous. The food is amazing, even though people think Polish food is Oof, no. you know, yeah. um, potatoes or something. But it's actually... <gasps> So much beautiful food, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when you were little, I was telling you the food, the drinks, the vodka is very good. Yeah. The seat is, uh, is like uh, very modern. You can find anything and everything in, in, in Warsaw. Um, the people are very, very kind. Um, so you need to get a little bit warm. <laughs> yeah. And then you have really good friends as well. True, true. So that's why when I got, when I, you know, I came, I think I arrived in Warsaw and then within five months, okay, I, I thought, okay, this is where I will establish my company. <laughs> so, And I have seen that you have done a lot of work, not only on the field, like uh, with workshops and physical workshops in uh, Warsaw, but also online. So I have seen, which is very interesting, and I, I would like to ask you, what is your experience in spreading the love for sake in different mm -hmm. formats, especially now after COVID or during COVID? Mm -hmm. So let us know about uh, the collaborations that you had. Uh, I think you were working with uh, MIT University and and uh, yeah doing some some workshops also with other people so please tell us more about it yeah thank you well as soon as i established my sarika group the first workshop i did was um 
face to face because this was before the lockdown. Well, it was in between the lockdown because I opened my company kind of during the pandemic <laughs> with Google, Google Translate and going to the office to explain <laughs> with Google. Anyway, so the first one I did was actually um, the Polish Vodka Museum uh, in person. So, and that was before the lockdown. And it was, I found it really quite interesting to have the other like uh, beverage professionals, they, they are all vodka professionals. So yeah, that, that was the start. And uh, there were, we had many great plans after that, but unfortunately lockdown happened. But just before the lockdown, we actually had Poland's first sake festival. So wow. <laughs> yeah, was, yeah and that is Paisarika group. <laughs> Other people were doing it. I, I did a okay. master class there. Yeah, that's very <laughs> yeah. interesting. Yeah, so it was so that's how I started with in person. I mean, I wasn't really thinking about digital or online at that time because it was just before lockdown. And then lockdown happened. So all of the plans that I had had to be canceled, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I also actually did some for um like the women's group here in Warsaw and etc. But once um, lockdown happened, then uh, luckily some people started contacting me that maybe you can do a workshop for us online. And I was online? Because, you know, I thought Skorsake, I don't know how I could do it online with the tasting. <laughs> and But then they were saying, you know, think about it. And yeah, at the end, um, we did it with the tasting and it all at the end worked out, but it, I really was kind of a bit nervous because it's all the first time. <laughs> and this was for people located in Poland or outside of Poland? No, actually this was for the um, MIT's Japan program. So, wow. <laughs> so it was like logistically to get the sake to them. So through yeah. a U.S. Um, online retailer to arrange through that that way because I'm physically in the EU, so you know uh, you can't. Yeah. So it was a, a bit of I mean it was my first time and a lot of logistical uh, organization to think about, but it worked out really well. And um, after that, so I've been you know, luckily getting more requests, but um, also requests to have a uh, online course itself so okay. rather than having the workshop with the time difference and <laughs> logistical yes. things um someone asked me why don't you develop a digital course like an on-demand one where you can go through the materials yeah so yeah. i'm working on that as well wow. <laughs> so yeah there's different new ideas after the lockdown <laughs> <laughs> yes, and hopefully now in summertime the lockdown will uh, be reduced, and hopefully with the vaccines and vaccinations and everything is gonna. Be. I hope so because I am moving to. Ojalá Berlin. que sí. Ojalá <laughs> que sí. Because I am moving to Berlin this August. Yes, that's right. I'm Just so happy you're coming close. <laughs> very close to <laughs> Poland. So you will have me in Poland tasting sake for sure together. 
And uh, yes, uh, I really am very positive that the situation will improve and also for, for you and also for me, for my own uh, intercultural communication business as well. So hopefully, and um, also what I have seen is that you have, uh, going back to Sake, so you have been uh, doing a project which is called Women in Sake. And I think yeah. this is a fabulous, <laughs> really very interesting topic. And could you please tell us more about uh, women in sex? What is it about? Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, first of all, just to give you a background, as I mentioned earlier, gender, you know, issues in Japan is unfortunately pretty bad. Like <laughs> if you look at global indexes. We're always kind of in the bottom ranking, definitely, um, I think the worst in all of the so-called developed countries. I think the last one was 121 place out of, let's say, 153. Yeah, so that bad. <laughs> so in general, but um, of course, you know, things are changing, although this year with the pandemic, seems like there's like rumors saying that probably this ranking is going to be worse next time because um, yeah, in terms of um, uh, suicide rates for women in Japan have gone up up to even like 40% or something crazy like this because of the pandemic, etc. Anyway, just as a context, it's not really a fantastic, you know, gender equal society to start with, <laughs> but yeah, unfortunately, so, um, but if you take the sake industry itself, there's a lot of exciting things happening, like in terms of um, a lot of great new women are going into the sake brewery and business, etc. So that's, that's a really exciting thing. But the current fact is that there's about 1,200 sake breweries all over Japan. And um, there's probably about 30 women um, master brewers. So each brewery would have one master brewer. So in terms of numbers, it's quite uh, <laughs> 30 out of 1,200 is quite uh, low yet. Yeah. Um, originally, because there were even like up to even as early as recent as 40 years ago, it was kind of um, saying that women were not like women were banned from entering the sake brewery because of various reasons, like uh, practical reasons and religious reasons, and women have periods that may interfere with the fermentation. Many, many different legitimate and, yeah. and maybe not legitimate reasons. But anyway, so but that's changing, and that's the exciting thing that I wanted to, um, if possible, document. So the Women in Sake project is basically I've been um, trying to. Um, highlight women who are working in the sake industry and in any role. Um, but so, so far I've interviewed like master brewers, women master brewers and uh, women who are, uh, regardless of if they're Japanese or not, working <laughs> with their passion to promote sake. So yeah, and I just wanted to highlight their achievements because they're actually making a huge contribution to the sake industry because Without these kind of new ideas and thinking, I think, you know, the sake, the market or industry itself is, has been going down, 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 like really 
mm, one third of what it used to be. So I think this is a great kind of progress that there's new blood coming in and making changes. Yeah, so that's <laughs> the Women in Saki project. <laughs> and from, because I have seen uh, some of the videos, um, uh, some of them are in Japanese, so my Japanese is not that good yet. <laughs> Only to say itadakimasu to eat and to drink. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I have seen also a few interviews are in English and uh, they are quite oh, interesting. You have five subtitles, the, the Japanese the subtitles. I saw today, yeah. <laughs> and also there was an, another interview that a lady from London uh, was yeah. And how actually in Japan, how the trend is going down uh, and also it's like more male dominated, yet in London, for example, was more female dominated. Absolutely. I think overseas, the people who are loving and working with sake, a lot of them are women. Yeah, which is, yeah. Which is great. <laughs> which is very interesting. And also, you know, also supporting not only the culture, but uh, local breweries. Because I think she as well was trying to find some sake from breweries that are not really able to export. So, uh, yes. uh, and you are doing also a, a very good job because you are actually coming and showing the faces of women in Japan and to the outside to, to open for the people to know, know more, not only about sake, but also uh, this culture. And so I, I saw some of, of, the, of the videos and I, in a nutshell, what will be for you the most interesting findings from the interview? So if you can put it like, yeah, summing up, women are doing this, this is how, what we need to do, uh, this is what has been done and what would you like the main findings? Yeah, well, first of all, surprisingly, it's up upbeat. <laughs> I mean, uh, well, first of all, I think the experience are greatly different if you're actually a sake brewer or if you're, you know, outside of Japan and uh, sharing the love of sake because the resistance that you would encounter is going to be totally different. So, um, but over all across, um, I think it's quite upbeat in a way that, of course, some of the women brewers shared with me that you can see or hear uh, through their interview that, yeah, some people, you know, um, never really believed that they were actually brewing it. They were saying like, oh, it's maybe for marketing reasons or that you oh. want to get it brewed by a woman for marketing reasons. So they, I mean, I think resistance is more in, in Japan. Whereas if you're outside like myself, um, it's, so much easier I think because you're outside of this context and uh, you know I, there's <laughs> in, uh, whereas if you're really in the sake brewery itself it's a there's much more resistance from I think fellow um, like fellow it. industry people as yeah. well so yeah the experience really varies with which where you are and uh, what you're doing but overall um even the late the last person who is an amazing person in Niigata that I interviewed uh, she is 
um, she's not a brewer, but she's the um, company vice president of her brewery. And she basically said she hasn't really <laughs> had so much, um, you know, gender barriers. So I, it seems like they greatly vary according to the context. So it's hard to say, like, it's like this in general, but they do vary. But most of the people who said they're has been resistance is of course the brewers themselves okay yeah. Yeah. Mm. so very interesting yeah but it's, it's great that i think um there's going to be more in, because you know japan the population is shrinking and more and more people are going to have less kids which means that the only kid might be a woman who will be inheriting the brewery so i think this trend will definitely continue and uh, yeah and I think it's a positive thing and there's surely these women brewers are coming up with really fun new ways to brew or products and ideas so it's all a great I think contribution to the yeah sake industry so it's all good <laughs> I mean I hope <laughs> so we talk about uh, sake until now, but we haven't talked about face yoga. <laughs> Which is like really very, very nice uh, topic. And I took one workshop with you here in Taiwan in sake and <laughs> face yoga. Thank you, <laughs> and I was, you know, amazed by it. And I would like to ask you, how come do you arrive to face yoga? And then how do you add uh, face yoga and sake to Sarika group? Such <laughs> a good question. <laughs> well, again, this was by complete accident. I mean, face yoga was also a complete accident. Um, I just, um, by, just by chance, I heard about it and I thought it sounded like a joke, but I was just so curious. And the more I read about it, it's, I thought, oh, this muscle exercise, I mean, it makes so much sense if we, you know, we all know the importance of body muscle exercise, why not exercise the face? So I just went to the teacher training and it just all happened like that. <laughs> And how does, yes, actually, this is, a, this has been a big dilemma, how to bring these completely two different passions together, <laughs> as you can imagine, because they're really different. <laughs> and I actually talked to, we have um, a great um, women entrepreneurs group that I'm, we do weekly um, uh, kind of uh, meetings and accountability meetings and partnership. And it turns out, I thought I was the only one struggling to choose between these two things, but it turns out so many people are multi-passionate. <laughs> and and uh, first, because I, when I was registering my company, I thought maybe I should focus on one. So I thought, okay, I would focus on sake, but somehow, you know, I love face yoga equally. <laughs> it's like, I can't choose. It's like two of your kids. You can't choose one or the other. <laughs> so, so basically for my company's mission and everything, I, I, I kept the two and uh, still with the same mission that 
<laughs> to brighten people's faces and spirits through face yoga and sake, <laughs> and thereby um, hopefully also supporting small-scale breweries and women brewers. But anyway, so how did how do I bring these two together? My first experiment is just coming, which is the <laughs> digital course, online course of face yoga for sake and wine lovers. <laughs> I know, that's why I want to go to that uh, topic, which is, I think, and also you have one course ready, face yoga for hangovers. So like, oh, yes, yes, that's a course. <laughs> So... I am going to link in somewhere of the boxes uh, later on and the homepage of Sarika, so Sarika Group. And uh, for example, for the face yoga for hangovers, uh, it is a free mini course. So how do people register to this course? Oh, you just, um, thank you, Jama. <laughs> you just go to my website and there's a link there that says free course. So you basically click that. Yeah, and it and will take you there. To the and registration and it's free that one is free <laughs> and the, <laughs> the soft launch of face yoga for sake and wine lovers when is going to happen great question april fool's day <laughs> oh <laughs> yeah. it sounds very like a joke, but it's actually going to be real <laughs> And I will have the cart open for 10 days. April 1 to April 10th is my. Okay, so I'm going to link the, the homepage. And then anyone who is interested, feel free to register for any of the courses and find more information about uh, face yoga, sake, the upcoming events. And uh, to finish this interview, just because uh, with the interview, I only not only present uh, one expertise of my interview, but also like the person itself. So I have a uh, um, segment called Silly Questions, just to get to know <laughs> uh, a little bit more about Sarika. So Sarika, just very fast. Who is your inspiration? My mama. <laughs> a movie that you love and why? You know, but the last movie I saw was The Lion King in the movie oh, theater. But that's, <laughs> but that's my very first, nice. Yes, it's my first date with my husband and I fell asleep. I'm <laughs> <laughs> mm, not sure if it was a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I love the Lion King. It's a really, really nice movie for kids and for for everybody. A book that you like and why? Oh, you know, the books I've been reading are all sake textbooks recently. <laughs> and why? Because I just love it. Because I I, I read it. I mean, every time I open these textbooks, I learn something new. So, yeah, yeah. I haven't read a proper book actually for ages. The last couple of years, it's all sake textbooks okay. everywhere. Okay. <laughs> it's nice. It's a passion. It's, it's your love. Um, so, do you have a hidden talent? A talent that no one knows that you have? 
Oh, I can make uh, crazy faces. <laughs> this is the lion pose, I remember. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> You're so good. You're I, I, lear I learned to do crazy faces. <laughs> <laughs> A part of sake, which type of alcohol did you love the most? Oh, well, actually, I love any type of alcohol, but especially wine. Yes. And Polish vodka is something I'm beginning to love now. Also. Uh, very, when you are in Poland, do you get in love with the, the Polish? Yes. And yeah. the Bloody Mary, of course. Yes. With the vodka. And wine, which type of wine? Do you have a particular wine that you like? Well, depending on my mood, like um, it can be Prosecco when I feel like something refreshing. I mean, actually, really, I love everything. <laughs> so you're, you're in the right continent. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> wine is so reasonable here. <laughs> so your favorite country? Uh, this is also so difficult, <laughs> impossible. But I always try to think that the country I'm in is the favorite one at that moment. So, I mean, of course, there's so many great countries. And, but yeah, as of now, because I'm in Warsaw and I just want to fully appreciate this country. So, Warsaw. at the moment, it is Warsaw. <laughs> hold it, hold it. <laughs> Um, for, and my last question is, uh, any idea or suggestion that you can share with people uh, that can be of inspiration? For example, don't waste time, be in the present, any motto that you have? What would you like, would you like to share with people? Yeah. So far, I've just always been going with my inspiration. So I think your gut instinct knows knows you best so i think following that you don't need to be scared <laughs> yeah well, let's see <laughs> but yes i would say yeah follow your instinct i think that's for sure that's been that's how i've been making up all of my decisions my life decisions <laughs> that's beautiful so let's let's follow our intuition <laughs> Thank you, Sarika, for your time. It was a very wonderful interview. Um, thank you very much for sharing all your knowledge. And um, I hope to see you in person this year or maybe the next year. Elizabeth. Oh, Giovanna, really. Thank you. Muchísimas gracias. It's really, really, I'm so glad to see you and talk to you. And I, very excited you're coming to Berlin this way, <laughs> this side. <laughs> Arigato gozaimasu. Arigato. Thank you for having me, really. Thanks so much.